Thanks, Abby. So we're continuing our series through Ezekiel today. And to recap, for those who may have missed the last couple weeks, um, we started out this series looking at Ezekiel's call. So you have this move where he trains to be a priest, he's groomed to be a priest, and then in exile he becomes a prophet. And he has this call from priest to prophet, if we trace Ezekiel's life. So we looked at that in week one. And then in week two, last week, we looked at the concept of exile and how it plays out in Israel's story. So we looked at how, in exile, Ezekiel had to learn a new way of praising, a new way of communicating with God, and we ended with these three questions, right? Is there space to lament in your life? Is there space to dream? Is there space to listen in your life? And these are all good questions of reflection. So, the call, and then what is exile? What does it look like? This week, we're staying with the theme of exile, but we're going to look at the implications of exile. Right? So, in exile, what, what is God trying to do? Um, if last week is about identifying what exile looks like, this week is looking at how it affects our lives, how it actually impacts us. And so we're going to look at the implication of exile. So we've got three questions that we'll look at, but before we dive in, I want you to think of something that you know like the back of your hand, all right? Something that's really familiar to you. So maybe it is a route you take to work or something. Um, you can do it blindfolded. You've done it a thousand times. Or maybe it's a song, right? You hear the first two notes, and then you know every word, every pause, every breakdown. You got it all memorized. Maybe it's, it's a song. Or maybe it is your coffee routine. So every morning, you get out your scale, and then you take out your beans, and you hand grind them because it's an art right? It's not, it's not a, okay, Bill's agreeing. It's an art, sure. You hand grind your beans, and then you boil your water to a specific temperature. You do your thing. And then after that, you cascade your water. You don't pour it. You cascade your water over the grinds. And then you do something with the water, the grounds, something. I actually don't drink coffee. Um, (laughs) But there's something with bloom or acidity or aroma. All that stuff comes together. 45 minutes later, you have your coffee. Great. (laughs) You're ready to drink it. Or I mean experience. You're ready to experience your coffee. So for some of us, we can do this process blindfolded. It is familiar for us. Uh, It's second nature. And so now, imagine that along your regular route, there's major construction. And the route that you would normally take to work doesn't work anymore. Or imagine you're listening to a song and you're on Spotify and you play the live remix version. And so you hear the first couple songs or the first couple notes. You're like, I know this song. But then he gives a shout out to the people in the back and you're like, I don't know this. Right? It's a little different. Or imagine that now you're in another country and you're going to measure out your, uh, your ingredients is that what you'd call them? Your coffee elements. And then you, um, like they don't use imperial, they use metric. And so now you have to try and figure out how much do I put in? I don't know. I wouldn't know anyways. Um, 
is you're trying to figure out how many degrees the water should be, how much coffee you put in. And you can't do it because the tools that you're using don't match how you know things to be. So what if this happened? It would be disorienting. It would be uh, unsettling in some ways. And so now, raise the stakes. Imagine that now we're talking about not a song or a root or coffee. We're not talking about that. But instead, we're talking about how Israel has experienced God in the past. Right? We're talking about how Israel has experienced God in the past and then what God is calling them into in the future. This is exactly the kind of shift that Israel is forced to confront in our passage today. Right? This is how exile affects our lives. Don't believe me? Let's look at the text. So again, we're in Ezekiel 11, 1 through 12, in the message translation. And remember, Ezekiel is in Babylon. He has had a vision that he is carried by the Spirit to the temple in Jerusalem. So in chapter 10, something huge has happened. Ezekiel sees the glory of God leave the temple. And I can't understate or can't overstate how big this is. He's seen the glory of God leave the temple. This is a huge revelation. This is unthinkable. Israel was, Israel is, God's chosen people. And the idea that God's glory would leave the temple, again, unthinkable. Because most understood this to mean that if God had left the temple, God had left his people. The kicker is, even though Ezekiel sees all of this in chapter 10, we don't know that anyone else actually knew this to be the case. Keep that in mind as we continue. Ezekiel sees the glory of God leave the temple. And so, verse 1, Ezekiel is lifted to the temple gate, and he faces, uh, it's the gate that faces east. So this is known as the gate of righteousness, or the gate of the Lord. And at this special entrance, he sees 25 men gathered around the gate. So now pay attention to what the text says. It says, I recognized the leaders, Jaazaniah, son of Azur, and Pelatiah, son of Benaiah. You're thinking, those words. Okay, I don't know what those mean. Well, the names matter. Like, that kind of frames the whole chapter for us. And so, Jenaiah, son of Azur, actually means God hears help. God hears help. And then the second person, Pelatiah, his name means God delivers and God builds. So you have two leaders gathering other leaders at the entrance to the temple. And their names are God hears, cries for help, God delivers, and God builds. Is everyone tracking? These are the people who are there. And it appears that the right people are leading in the present time. Right? You have the right people leading the people in the temple at the present time. And at the right time, everything seems to be good. So God said, Son of man, these are the men who draw up blueprints for sin, who think up new programs for evil in the city, 
And they say, they can make anything happen here. We're the best. We're the choices, the, the choice pieces of meat in the soup pot. And then God tells Ezekiel, oppose them, son of man. Preach against them. Now, I want you to imagine, again, how disorienting this would be for Ezekiel. Ezekiel is groomed to be a priest, right? He has faith in the religious structure of his world. The leaders see that at the sacred gate, and remember, this gate was called the gate of righteousness, the gate of the Lord, because it was the place where the Ark of the Covenant would come into the temple, If there was ever a procession of the king coming into the temple, it would come in through the east gate. That's where everyone is gathered right now. The gate of the Lord. And again, just like names matter, Ezekiel's name means God is strengthening. God is strengthening Israel. And so through the person of Ezekiel, that's what's happening. He's prophesying. He's doing his thing. It's coming to be. And it would seem that these two leaders who are now at the temple would be doing the same thing. God hears, cries for help. God builds. God delivers. It seems that the right people are in the right place, in the right way. And they're going to help restore Israel back. But this is where the chapter starts to work on us, right, as the church. This is where the The text reads us. Because Ezekiel is told to push back and condemn these two leaders who seem to be the right people for the right time. What's up with that? I think we can read the condemnation against Janaziah and Pelatiah as coming down against two people who are intentionally trying to mislead the people of God for the purpose of profiting off the misfortune of others. Right? That's typically how we read this passage. If we read this, this chapter, we think there's two people who are misleading all of the people in Israel. They're in the temple. They have, uh, they have bad motives. They're trying to profit off other people. And this is one way to read these two characters in the chapter. But another way to read this this condemnation from Ezekiel, goes this way. Most of Israel's religious leaders, most of the uh, upper crust of society, most of the people who have been directing how worship goes and how life goes in Israel, they've been carried off to Babylon already. Which means that the remaining ones are kind of flying blind. Religious leaders who remain, haven't been trained in the same way that Ezekiel has been trained. They haven't been taught how to organize and how to lead worship in the same ways that Ezekiel has. And this is a game changer because with this realization in mind, it gives a completely different context to these two leaders, right? God hears and God delivers. It completely changes the context for what they're supposed to do or how they're supposed to do their work. We read these two characters and immediately think, these two leaders are crooks. But what if Janaziah and Pelatiah, 
are trying to lead the people in the best ways that they know how. So they dip into their well of knowledge. They dip into their experience. They go back to what they know, what they've been taught. And in doing that, they're actually doing what Ezekiel's accusing them of. They're drawing up blueprints for sin. Like, they're trying to reestablish religious order, but the programs and institutions that they're trying to revive actually end up doing more harm than good. Like, what if Janaziah and Pelatiah are trying to do the best with what they've got? They're doing what they've been taught to do. They're doing what they know to be good and right when it comes to ministering to the people of Israel. But in the process of leading, they are malforming instead of restoring. They're malforming instead of restoring. You see, the belief that they have in their ability as leaders to bring restoration back to Israel is actually part of the issue, part of the problem. Because their sense of being, their sense of being able to make anything happen does two things. One, it doesn't include God. Two, it makes the restoration of Israel dependent on them as priests, dependent on them in their role as priests. So it makes Israel's restoration dependent on them, not on God. And if Israel is to be restored to how things were, if the glory of God is to come back to the temple, right, if it's to return, then the work of priests is critical. It's necessary. They are needed. So these two leaders, they need to be needed. Perhaps this attitude or vision of themselves is actually what God is trying to move Israel away from in the first place. So what if, despite good intentions, these two leaders are malforming instead of restoring? And this brings up our first question for the day. What do we do when our response in exile is malformative? Like, what do we do when our response to being exiled seems to malform us. We read about Jazaniah and Pelatiah and never imagine how we might be like them when we face adversity. But think about this. What do we do when we think we're being faithful, but we end up doing more harm than good? Right? When our help actually hurts. Or put differently... What do we do when what we were taught about God and the church, the gospel, and the world doesn't make us truer people, right? It doesn't make us truer people. What, 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 what do we do when that happens? We're not made to be truer people. This is the challenge of these first couple verses in Ezekiel. And note the nuance here. Like, we're making an important distinction, really important distinction. We don't just read the Bible so that it gives us knowledge about what is true. It does that. But as Christians, we read the Bible, we hear sermons, we study the word together because we believe that the one that the book points to, right, the one that the Bible points to will make us more true. Right? They will make us truer people. So let me say it again so we don't mishear me. 
We don't read the Bible for the sole purpose of gaining true knowledge. We read the Bible because in reading it, as we encounter Jesus in every page, we are formed into truer people. We are formed into truer people. Big distinction there, right? We're formed into truer people. So as we learn to embody the character of God, as revealed to us in Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we know that verse, right? We are made into truer people, people who are true to the image that each of us have been created in. The image of God. And that's what it means to be truer people. So that's what we're trying to do. So then when we enter exile... We're trying to become truer people all through our lives, our Christian lives. Um, But then in exile, we end up going to things that malform us. That's disorienting. So read from the perspective of two leaders who are trying to do the right thing, but are failing in exile, this is what the text asks us today in these first few verses. What do we do when we're in exile and the things that have always grounded us seem to be crumbling right in front of us, right? Like, how do we live when the glory has left the temple? When the glory has left the temple, what do we do? As I was preparing this week, thinking about these two leaders, I empathized with them. Because I can totally see myself trying to do the same things that they're doing when everything's falling down. Like, the temptation to hold on to the temple is real. The temptation to hold on to an idea that God is there, the glory of the temple rests on the temple and with my people. The temptation is real there. The temptation to hold on to a particular way of experiencing God is real. So for these two leaders, it makes sense. They think that they, if they restore the temple then the people will turn back to God, and then God will bring back the exiles, and then the glory of God will come back to the temple, and all will be right. Like, they think they can turn back time that way. And this makes sense for them to do so. And so, by holding on to this idea, this understanding of God who dwells there, you can see it, you can touch it, you can control it. And it's clear If God is always at the temple, in the temple, it means that as long as I'm near the temple, God is near to me. That's the logic they're following. And this is the implication of exile. This is what exile actually does to us. What it tries to make us do. It tries to make us clutch for certainty. Okay, so exile itself, the experience of exile, whenever we go through exile, what it forces us to do is to try and reach out and grab onto the first thing we know. It tries to make us clutch for certainty. So these two leaders, when we experience exile, um, like them when we experience exile, we find ourselves in wilderness. And if you're anything like me, your first response is to try and figure out what is familiar or what is comfortable. It's to go to what we know will stop the disorientation will stop the spiral. So maybe it's a Bible verse or maybe it's a song or an author. Maybe it's a spiritual practice or an activity 
a specific preacher or teacher. And we turn to these things to right the ship back on its course, right? We experienced God in one way. We encountered God in one way when I was growing up. And so when I hit any kind of turbulence now, I'm just going to try and go back to that experience, go back to that envisioning of God. And that's what we try and do. We try and grab on to the thing we know to be true. And we try and replicate the experience that we once experienced God in. Of course, we're speaking in generalities here. There's more to life than just the experience of God we had. And continually, God is always trying to do that and show up in our lives, quote-unquote. But also, show us that there's more than that one experience. And that God is present in our lives in so many other ways. And so yesterday, Abby and I were at a... um, a friend's daughter's first birthday party, and they had a smash cake. I didn't know what that was until yesterday. It was news to me. Um, does everyone know what that is? Okay, I wasn't alone. This is good. I was at the party, and everyone was like, you don't know what that is? Well, thank you, people. Um, a smash cake is you put it in front of a baby, and then they smash it to celebrate their first birthday. Is that right, people with kids? Yeah, yeah. So, smash cake. And everyone had their phones out. We're watching uh, our friend's little daughter try and smash the cake. And she's taking her time. Like, <laughs> she wasn't really doing the, the smashing. So she takes her hand and just sits it in the cake. We're watching her. And then you see people put their phones down. They're like, this is taking too long. The videos are four minutes now, and she hasn't done anything. (laughs) And then finally, after playing with the cake for a a long time, she um, does this and puts it into her mouth, and she tastes it. And until then, she had been docile. As soon as the icing hit her tongue... She just went crazy on the cake. So two hands going everywhere, cakes going everywhere. She ate a bunch of it, a bunch landed on the floor. And it was anticlimactic up to that point. Then the cake started flying. Objective complete, the cake is smashed, okay? So I'm thinking this whole time as I'm there, if given the option, if she could talk, I bet she would ask for strawberry cake every day for every meal, because once she tried it, she loved it. But of course, if her parents only ever gave her cake, if she only ever had cake to eat, they never let her experience any other food. Like she, she knows she loves this one, but if they never gave her any other food, she would not be healthy. In fact, Her love for a certain experience of food in the form of strawberry cake would malnourish her and would malform her if it was the only thing that she ever received when she was hungry. Do you see what's happening here? Just like this baby and the smash cake, 
just like these two priests who sought to lead by trying to revive the temple based on practices that they used to know and that fed them well. This whole chapter, chapter 11, is a chapter where God confronts how the religious remnant is stuck on trying to keep God boxed into the exclusivity of their temple. Like the whole chapter is a chapter where God is trying to confront the religious remnant to break out of how they're thinking about God and how they're thinking about the world and how the world and God interact and their place in it. So to put it another way, Israel needs to be ridded of its conception that the glory of God only exists among their people, in their temple. He needs to open up their palates to a fuller sense of who God is. So what do we do when our response to exile is malformative? This is a big question. If you've made it this far, we're okay, all right? We're going to start landing the plane. Since our first question is, what do we do when our response in exile is malformative? It begs a second question. How do we know if our response in exile is malformative? How do we know if our response in exile is forming us in a poor way? And this point is really short. It's really simple. How do we know? We don't. We don't know. In the moment, most of us, we won't know. We won't know if exile is forming us rightly or if we're being malformed in our response to exile. We won't know. Certainly not in the moment, we won't. And this is part of the frustration of exile. Things always seem to be shifting when we're in exile. Nothing seems to make sense when we're in exile. So how do we know if our response is a good response or a bad response? In the moment, most of the time, we will not know. But notice, this desire for assurance, this desire for certainty is exactly what we think will ground us when we're in exile. Except it's a false comfort. Everything we just talked about, is caught up in this moment. It's a false comfort. There's no way to know when we're in the middle of exile whether or not we're being formed rightly or our response is a good response or a bad response. There's no way to know. So where do we go from here? This is the final question. Where do we go from here? We don't have time to go through the whole chapter. But the chapter starts with Ezekiel, who has a vision that highlights how Jerusalem has has tried to deal with exile. I'm going to give us a flyover of the whole chapter. Ezekiel has a vision, and it says, Jerusalem is trying to deal with exile by turning to what was. That's their response to the process of exile. 
They're trying to go to what was. And then the chapter shows how what was was not so great. In fact, what was led to death and destruction. And Ezekiel is tasked with letting Jerusalem know this truth. What you're going to, what was in Jerusalem, was never where God actually wants the city to end up in the long term. So in exile, a move back to what was is a move in the wrong direction. But then the chapter finishes with this. God wants to give you a new heart. The chapter finishes by saying God wants to give you a new heart. God wants to put his spirit in you. He wants to cut out your heart of stone. And he wants to replace it with a heart that is moved like his. And so where do we go from here? I think many times when it comes to exile, we think about it like it's a kind of demolition. right? We find ourselves in exile... We talked about it last week. Remember, Jack told a story about two inmates who found themselves literally in prison, and they felt like they were in exile. But in that moment, in that experience of it, God was there, and they found God there. Many times when we think about exile, we think that it is a kind of demolition of our lives because it's not comfortable. It's a deconstruction of our lives. It destroys us. And as we experience it, many times this can lead to cynicism. It can lead to bitterness. It can lead to turning away from everything that you once held on to. This is what exile does to us. This is an implication of exile. It makes us feel these things because there's nothing to hold on to. we think of exile as deconstruction. And once everything is torn down, the idea of rebuilding something back up again seems exhausting. So we, we don't. We stop. And actually, the thought of having to rebuild after exile, the thought of feeling like there's nothing to hold on to, actually keeps us from pressing into what God wants for our lives in the first place. It keeps us from doing that. And this is how exile seen as deconstruction works. It paralyzes us and keeps us in the wilderness. Don't think of exile like it's deconstruction. Wrong image. Think about exile like it's decomposition. Not deconstruction, decomposition. Just as plants naturally bear fruit, and then they decompose, they grow and they wilt, they bloom and they wither, exile is our Christian life's natural death so that God can continue to cause us to grow. That's not to downplay how uncomfortable exile can be. 
But dying to ourselves is never comfortable. Becoming truer people is not an easy task. When everything seems to be falling apart, when the glory has left the temple, when we find ourselves in exile, when we feel like we're in free fall, embrace this, friends. All is not lost. Exile can form us towards faithfulness just as much as it malforms us. And here's where we'll land the plane today. When you're in exile, do you treat it as if it's deconstruction or do you treat it like it's decomposition? Does the idea of rebuilding and regrowing just seem so paralyzing, so daunting that it it paralyzes you? Or when it tears down, when it dies, is that the natural cycle that it's taking in your life to cause you to grow more, to regrow, to become more vibrant, to become healthier, for your roots to grow deeper? I think we think of deconstruction and we think there's fear there because we might lose our faith. In exile, we might lose everything that held us in terms of our identity. Do not be afraid, friends. There is nowhere you can go. There is nothing you can do to break communion with God. God loves you. God desires you. God wants to know you, and he wants to be known by you. God wants to, in this chapter, take our hearts of stone and replace them with his own heart. He wants to put his spirit inside of us and actualize our lives, enliven our lives with his spirit. So do not fear when you find yourself in exile. Because God is there with you. In every storm, in every trial, in every disappointment, in every instance of delusion. Exile is decomposition, not deconstruction. I'm reminded of two stories, and then we'll have the band come up. In Mark, we always tell this story about Jesus on the water, in the boat. There's a storm that happens, right? And then the disciples are fearing for their lives, and they say, I think the text says, they feared a great fear. So they're not just scared, they're very, very scared. And the storm's doing its thing. It's rocking the boat. They feel like there's nothing to hold on to. They feel like they're about to perish. And then Jesus gets up and says, Peace, be still. Everything freezes. The storm stops. Jesus saves them from the storm. They're saved from the storm. 
But there's another storm boat story in Mark, two chapters later. And this one normally gets overlooked. Because in this story, there's a storm, they're on the boat, things get rocky. And Jesus has been up on a mountain. He hasn't been in the boat with them this time. He's been up on the mountain, and it says he was praying, and he's watching them toil at the oars all night. And then it says he comes down from the mountain, and he intends to pass them by. He intends to pass them by. This is in Mark 6. And so we have two storm stories. One, Jesus saves from the storm. We know that one well. That's the kid one. Right? That's the Flanagraph version. We see that one. This one we don't see. Where Jesus is on the mountain, he comes down, and then he intends to pass them by. And don't miss what that language means. In the Old Testament, when God passes by someone, what's he doing? On Mount Sinai, what's he doing when he passes by Moses, hidden in the cleft of the rock? He's trying to reveal himself in new ways. And so in Mark 6, we have this story. And Jesus is on the mountain. He comes down. He intends to pass them by. He watches them toil at the oars all night. And then it says again, the disciples were scared. They, they were fearful. They thought he was a ghost, actually, is what the text says. And then Jesus stops and says, fear not. It is I. And in this moment, after Jesus has saved them from the storm, this time, as he's trying to pass them by and reveal who God is, not just master over the wind and the waves, but master over their lives, and the one who is able to walk on water, and the one who wants to be with them, he tries to save them through the storm in this one. Two storm stories. Jesus saves from the storm, and then Jesus saves through the storm. He's trying to pass them by. And that is what exile looks like. We look at exile, and we want to say, God, save me right away. But there's a kind of exile. There's a way of being in exile that says, God, how are you passing me by right now? Where are you in this exile? And desire that. Jesus saves from storms, it's true. But he saves us through storms just as much. And so, let us pray and reflect. Libby will be here, praying and able to pray with you. Um, if you desire to share your heart. But let us pray and know that God is with us. Lord, we are grateful for the gift of this day. And though we oftentimes feel like in exile, the right move is to clutch on to all the things we know to be true. 
we pray that if you are trying to pass us by, Lord, may we not miss you. We pray in all of the ways that we make sacred cows out of experiences. We make you in our own image, conceptions of you in our own image, that you would purify us of those appetites. And in exile, may that be the outcome that we get to. That we are made to be truer people. People who come to know you more and who reflect you well in the world. Comfort us as we go about our, way, our, our week. Be near to us as we sing. And speak to us in ways that we can hear and discern your will. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Amen.